Well, good morning. Happy New Year to all of you. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation or seen a situation where somebody is both right and wrong at the same time? Now, some of you are elbowing your spouse. You don't have to do that, but just say, have you ever been in a situation where somebody is both right and wrong at the same time? You know, I'll start with one that's probably one of the most emotional ones you can imagine. And, uh, and so I'm not going to make you raise your hands or, or tell me which, you know, which one you are in this situation because I don't want to create factions in the church. But, uh, but just imagine you're on the interstate and you're driving along and you start seeing signs that there's construction ahead and the lanes are merging. And it says in three miles, merge left. Two miles, lane ending, merge left, right? You've all been in that situation right? And you're one of two people in that situation. You're the one who merges left and gets in line with everybody. As the traffic starts to slow down, you go ahead and get over. Or you're person two who says, the lane in front of me is now open. I'm going to continue on the right side all the way down to the very last second. And then I'm going to merge at the end. Right? Those are, your, those are kind of your two groups, all right? And both of them think that they are right, okay? I have, I have heard from internet experts, and now I can't testify that they are correct, but that, that those merges are designed for everybody to fill both lanes all the way to the end and merge at the end. Okay? They say that's the way that it works most efficiently. But I can tell you, having been on the left side, one of those 300 cars that when those cars are flying past you in that right lane and you've merged over two miles ago, you start to think that maybe they're wrong. Now, maybe they're wrong. So, so they may think they're right. They may be right. But if you're on the left, you think they're probably wrong. Or on the, on the other hand, if you're on the right, you think all those people are not only wrong, but are going to be sitting in line for a long time, right? And so, uh, and so, so both people think they're right, um, and both people think the other one is entirely wrong. And let me tell you about the third kind of person. The third kind of person is in the left side, and they see cars coming by, and what they do is they move over in the right lane and slow down to move with the left side, trapping all those people who are trying to pass everybody behind them. And I can tell you, those people are probably wrong, but it feels right, doesn't it? Feels right. Maybe a better example where we can all sort of, sort of agree is, is the situation she finds sometimes at like a, like a sports event, all right, where somebody can be entirely right and still be wrong. And we can all be on the sideline watching a game where the kids are playing and the referee just makes a horribly bad call. Right? And everybody on the sideline knows that was a bad call. And then you have the parent who feels that it is their obligation to inform the referee that that was a bad call. And they begin yelling at the referee. And for the next 10 minutes, they're just yelling at the referee, telling the referee how bad of a call that was. Now, the referee uh, is not going to change their mind. The game doesn't change. Um, but the parent makes a spectacle of themselves maybe even disrupts the game, embarrasses their team. The parent can be completely right about the call and still be completely wrong in the way they handled it. And now getting even more directly in our lives, 
I think you and I have been in that same situation in an argument before where you have been right or I have been right. And we've been so right that we're so willing to argue so hard and so mean to prove that we are right, that we end up in the wrong. We can win the argument and still be wrong. I've had to apologize before for being right. And we'll have to do so again. And I'm sure you have been there before. Uh, sometimes you can be right and still make all the wrong decisions. Well, that's sort of where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians here. Paul is addressing the Corinthians and he's addressing a group uh, as we get into this who, who are technically right. He says, technically, your knowledge is right. But the way you're doing it and the outcome of this is wrong. You're wrong. And so that's what he's going to begin to address. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be at the end of that chapter, verses 19 through 23, but we're actually going to start a little bit earlier. Uh, so as, as Paul begins to address this issue with the Corinthians, and we'll see that he draws out a principle that not only helps to correct the issue, but it helps to challenge us to step out of our comfort zones and, and to live in a different way because of it. So we're going to start actually in 1 Corinthians 8. I invite you to turn there and to keep up with me as we move towards 9. So in 1 Corinthians 8... Um, Paul is addressing the Corinthians and he's answering church, he's answering questions that have come from that church in Corinth. And the big question he's beginning to address here is, should we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? That's what he's addressing the Corinthian church for. And there's a group of Corinthians, uh, let me give you even more background, uh, in, in Corinth as they would take meat to be sacrificed, as they would take animals to be sacrificed in the temples there for idol worship, uh, the, the temples would then take that sacrificed meat, and they would resell it after it has been sacrificed. And, they, and that was a way for the Corinthians to get cheap and affordable meat. And so, so it was very common for Corinthians to buy meat from the temples and then either eat there at the temple or to take it home and eat it at home. And so there was a group of uh, Corinthians in the Corinthian church who were believers who had begun to buy this meat and to eat it there at the temple. And their argument was this. They said, listen, there's no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing as a false god. They don't exist. There is only one true God. And so this meat that people are sacrificing these idols, it's just meat. There's no spiritual significance to it because the idols don't actually exist. Those false gods don't actually exist. It should be fine for us to eat this meat. And so we're going to eat this meat. And so Paul is writing to them and he says, listen, you have this knowledge. And he says, and you're right. There is no such thing as an idol. There, these false gods don't exist. There is only one true God. He says, in all of this, you are right. But what I want you to see is that you have other Corinthian, other Corinthian brothers and sisters, your brothers in Christ, who cannot look at it the same way as you do. They don't have the same knowledge as you do. Because they've grown up in Corinth. They've grown up in this atmosphere of sacrificing to idols. They've been a part of that. And when they see that meat, they see meat that has been sacrificed to idols. They see it as a part of idol worship. And so Paul says, when you're eating this meat, you may have the right knowledge. And you may say, hey, there's no problem with this meat because there's no such thing as an idol. You might be right about that. But when your Corinthian brother comes and sees this and they see that meat, they might be tempted to eat it along with you. They might say, oh, it must be okay if they're eating it. But in their heart, they still see that meat as sacrifice to idols. They still see that as a problem. And you, by leading them to do something that they feel in their hearts is wrong, you're leading them into sin, and you are yourself sinning. So Paul advises these Corinthian believers. He says, even though you're right, I want you to give up eating meat 
out of love for your Christian brother and sister to protect them from getting ensnared in sin and, 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 and their own conscience, problems with their own conscience. So take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 through 13. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food sacrificed offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So in summary, in chapter 8, Paul is advising these Corinthian believers that even though you might be right about this meat, you should still not eat it. You should give up that right. You should give up that knowledge out of the sake of love for your Christian brother and sister to help keep them from stumbling. You should sacrifice your preference out of love for your Christian brother and sister. So then in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is actually continuing the same thought. And what he's going to do is he's going to give them an example of something that he has sacrificed, something that he has given up, a right that he has, that he has refused for the sake of ministry out of, out of love uh, for the Corinthians and the love for the lost. And so as he goes through uh, chapter 9, he begins to explain that because he is an apostle, the Corinthians owe him financial support. He, and he gives biblical evidence. He gives all these arguments to establish that, that, um, that the Corinthians should be uh, paying for the apostle to be there, uh, for his ministry, they should be supporting it. He gives examples of the commands of Christ that support that. And he says, listen, as an apostle, I have a right to be supported in my ministry, that I can minister full-time, that I can preach the gospel full-time and be supported by you as a church. But then he goes on to say, but I have refused that right. Not only have I not taken advantage of it, I don't even want it. I want to turn it away. In verse 12, chapter 9, verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 18, he says, What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Paul says, I have a right to be paid, but I'm going to refuse it because I don't want to put any sort of obstacle in the way of my being able to preach the gospel freely. I don't want to be obligated to wealthy Corinthian patrons. I don't want to be associated with a certain group that I have to, to serve and work for for this. I want to be free to be able to minister the, the gospel to the Corinthians uh, across uh, work levels, across statuses, uh, and in whatever way God leads me to do. And so he refuses that right of support and instead takes job and is working to support his own ministry. So you see here in these last two chapters leading up to our passage, Paul has argued that rather than insist on what we deserve, rather than insist on our own rights or what we know to be true, we can give up rights, we can give up preferences, we can give up what is owed to us, uh, and instead sacrifice those things for the good of the gospel, for the love of our Christian brothers and sisters, and for the love of the lost. So in beginning in verse 19, he goes still one step further in helping us understand the relationship of sacrifice and ministry. And that is our passage today, and that's where we're going to pick up. So we're going to be in verses 19 through 23, 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
And so this passage here, it's really the, the principle behind God, Paul's gospel ministry. And we're going to see as we go through this really uh, three different keys uh, to, this, to this ministry philosophy that he has. And the first key here is that we see that Paul gives up his personal preferences and goes to the lost in their context. So he starts off in verse 19 and says, he is free from all. He doesn't have any obligation. He just finished saying, there's a reason I didn't take any money. I don't want to be obligated to any man, but I want to be free to serve the gospel. And he says, but though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul says, even though I'm free from any man, I will actually serve everyone in order that I might save some. What does Paul mean by saying that he is a servant? He says he is willing to sacrifice his own preferences, his own comforts, his own rights. He's willing to adapt his behavior, uh, and he's willing to do all that in order to reach the lost more effectively. And we can see that in these verses coming up here. In verse 20, he says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. Now, you might think that's not such a huge stretch for Paul. After all, he grew up as a Jew. Paul was a Jew. He grew up in that context. He grew up as a Pharisee. And so he knew the law. He taught the law. And so he's able still to minister in that context. The Jew I became a Jew means he was still able to go into the synagogues. In fact, as you read uh, through the scriptures, you'll see that Paul regularly visited the synagogues first. And every town he went to and would preach to the Jews in the synagogues uh, for quite some time in each town. He maintained the ability to visit, read, and teach there, and he did that by respecting the Jewish leaders, by respecting the Jewish law, and, and by respecting the customs and traditions of the Jews that he already knew. So there's not a huge a difficulty for Paul, except that Paul's whole worldview had changed when he came to know Christ. Because as a Pharisee and as a Jew, he had seen the law as the means to righteousness. He found his righteousness by obedience to the law. But now as a follower of Christ, he said, the law will never give me righteousness. In fact, I can only find righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and in his grace. And so his whole perspective has changed. And so for now, for Paul to minister to the Jews requires for him uh, to, um, to change his, his, um, his actions around with them. His relationship with his Jewish faith has changed as he found Jesus the Messiah and salvation by faith apart from the law. And he goes on to explain further here, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. See, Paul recognizes that he's not under the law anymore. He's not dependent on the law for righteousness. But still, as he's ministering to the Jews, he says, but with them, I will be under the law. I will restrict my own diet. I will restrict my own behavior. I will give up things that I know I am free to do uh, so that I can minister effectively to the Jews, so that I can continue to preach the gospel to the Jews without them rejecting him. And so he was willing to restrict himself by following the ceremonial law, even though he knew that he was saved only by faith and not by the law. An example can be found in Acts 21. When Paul returns to Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles there in Jerusalem. And they say, listen, uh, there are these other Jews from other provinces that are having accusations against you. We want you to go with these four brothers who are taking a vow in the temple. We want you to go with them, go through the purification rites there in the temple, and, and to do things there in the temple along with them. And Paul says he can do that. Now, he knows he's not reliant on the temple uh, rites for righteousness. He knows he can find that only through grace in Jesus Christ. But he's willing to do this with them uh, for the sake of maintaining a relationship with the Jews that allows him to preach the gospel. Observing the law, respected the Jews he wished to reach with the gospel and allowed him to continue to share the gospel with them. 
He goes on in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Those outside the law, just as the Jews were those who followed the Torah, those outside the law were all the Gentiles, everybody who did not follow the Torah. And so there's a, a, a variety of different cultures, uh, Gentiles, that Paul would be uh, ministering to. And uh, for Paul, the former Jewish Pharisee, learning to engage Gentiles with the gospel would have been much more difficult because this is a significantly different culture than what he grew up in, the, in and what he led in. A great example of how he did this, though, can be found in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul travels to Athens. And as he gets to Athens, he's waiting for Silas and he's waiting for Timothy to come join him. So he's just waiting for them in this town. And as he looks around, he sees all these idols for worship, uh, where they worship all these different idols. And it says the idols provoked him. They provoked him because they were worshiping all these false gods. And so as he began to be there, uh, he began to uh, speak to the Jews in the synagogue. He began to speak to uh, people in the marketplace and influential figures in the mar marketplace. And some of these philosophers hear him and they pull him. They bring him to the Areopagus. And they bring him to the Areopagus and they say, uh, we want you to share with us here. We want you to tell us what you've been talking about in the marketplace. We want to hear all about it because that was a place... It was a forum for philosophers to share their latest ideas where they would get, uh, they would talk about them and they would kind of judge them and they would figure out what their merit was. And so Paul went to the Areopagus with them and he begins sharing with the Athenians uh, uh, the gospel. But his way of talking to the Athenians is much different than anywhere else we see Paul recorded talking. And the reason is that is because he has begun to talk to the Athenians in the way that they will understand. He begins to talk to them in philosophical terms. And so as he begins presenting the gospel, he's using their own philosophies that they will understand, the, the philosophies of Epicureanism and Stoicism. And he begins using some of their own quotes, some of the philosopher's quotes. He talks about the idols. And he says, I see that you are a very religious people, and you even have a statue to an altar to an unknown God. And so I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you're already worshiping and you don't even know who he is. And he begins talking to them in a way that they would understand. But for Paul to do that, he had to understand it. He quotes their own philosophers and their own poets to share the gospel with them. Paul presents the gospel in a way that this Athenian audience will hear and listen. He has spent the time to learn about the people of Athens in their culture and audience that is much different than his own. Acts 17 is a great example of sharing the gospel across cultures. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, he says, to the weak, I became weak. This points back to the, those Paul was talking of in chapter 8, those who were still concerned about idolatry and unsure about the meat sacrificed to idols. He says, uh, just as he's encouraged the Corinthians, give up the meat so that you can serve them. He says, to those who have weak consciences, I will give up anything in order that I might be able to minister to them. It also points back to chapter 9 where he says he was willing to go without pay. It means he had to become one of the working class. To the weak, he became weak. He became one of the working class so that he could minister to the working class, so that he could minister to all of those in Corinth, even those who were of a lesser status. I think it probably also even applies to those who are weak, those who are without the gospel of Christ, those who are trapped in their sin. Paul says, I am willing to go to them and share the gospel with them. I am empathetic because I too was once lost. I was once too trapped in my sin. And now I have the grace of Jesus Christ. So the first point we see that Paul is willing to sacrifice his own preferences and his own um, um, comforts in order to, to share the gospel. The second point we see is that Paul, Paul follows Christ first. In verse 20, Paul says that he is not under the law. 
Even though the Jews have the law, they're under the law. He says, I am not under the law, but I'm willing to live under the law. In verse 21, he says that he is as one outside the law, but he's careful to say that he is not outside the law of God, but that he is under the law of Christ. Every ministry that Paul did, even as he's learning to uh, alter his behaviors and his comforts and his preferences and give up his own rights, every, all of it's secondary to following Christ first. In every context with every group, Paul's first allegiance is to Christ. He's not willing to compromise first the message of the gospel, and he's not willing to compromise the moral lordship of Christ. He's not willing to sin, but he has moved from rules-based righteousness to living under the lordship and direction of Jesus Christ. And this is an important note for us that Paul did not use the grace of Christ. And even as he's instructed, he did not use the grace of Christ as a license to sin. He didn't use that as a license to go do whatever he want with whoever he wanted to. Instead, the grace of Christ gave him a greater moral imperative as he followed the lordship of Christ, lordship of Christ in every aspect of life, including as he ministered among the Gentiles. He called on the Corinthians to give up their right to eat meat for the sake of their brothers. He calls, he himself gives up his right to financial um, support so that he can freely minister to everyone in Corinth. He's willing to observe the restrictions of the Jewish ceremonial law. Over and over again, we see that actually for Paul to follow Christ it, uh, involved him giving up things, giving up rights, giving up comforts and prerogatives. It didn't involve him taking license to do uh, wrong things. And why is he willing to do all this? This is the third key to Paul's gospel ministry. Paul is willing to sacrifice every personal comfort, preference, or right for the purpose of seeing the lost to come to Christ. In verse 19, he says, I make myself a servant at all, of all that I might win more of them. Verse 20, he says, in order to win Jews. In verse 21, he says that I might win those under the law. In verse 22, he says that I might win the weak. In verse 22 and 23, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. All of this is worth it, not that they would all would be saved, but that under the lordship of Christ and in his grace and mercy, and for the sake of his gospel, that some may be saved. Paul was willing to sacrifice every personal preference and comfort for the sake of some to be saved. So in these chapters, Paul is te teaching the Corinthians about this idea of sacrifice and ministry. He's teaching them that love for each other and love for the law starts with humility and self-sacrifice. Chapter 8, he calls them to give up on their, their right and their knowledge, their ability to eat meat for the sake of love for the Christian brother. In chapter 9, he gives an example of where he gave up financial support so that he could minister to all freely with the gospel. And in this passage, he shows that he is willing to adapt under the lordship of Christ his own preferences, customs, behaviors, and speech for anyone and everyone in order that he might see some of them come to faith in Christ so that they themselves may share in the blessings of Christ that he has already come to know. So how do these things apply to us? As we look at it, we see, first of all, Paul gave up his personal preferences and goes to the lost in their context, and he calls on us to do the same. The gospel calls on us to this, do the same. It's always been a danger for each of us uh, to prefer our own benefit over the benefit of others. But I think it's increasingly the case that the world is tempting us uh, to to pursue our own comforts, our own satisfaction, our own insulation and isolation away from the benefit and needs and service of others. And these days, you can have groceries and meals delivered to your home. You can work from home in your pajamas. You can order up any sort of entertainment at, at any time uh, to watch 
You can jump online. You can find anybody who's going to already agree with your opinions. And so we need this reminder from God's word to not insulate ourselves, to not pursue our own comforts, to not just isolate ourselves from the needs of the others. We need this reminder from God's word that the gospel calls us to step out of our comfort zones. It calls us to give up our own preferences, give up our own rights, our own comforts, and across cultural, societal, or even ge geographical divides in order to go to the lost in their context. What does it look like for us? It means that you're going to go out of your way to meet and form relationships with people who all aren't already in your circles. And this is a difficult thing. I know it is. It's difficult for us to step out of our comfort zones. One way that we could do that is uh, I, I saw meetup.com. I don't know if you've ever been on meetup.com, but it's a great way to find uh, actually people all throughout the community who are looking to build relationships and do activities together. For a believer, this is a, this is a wonderful thing because it means we already know there's groups of non-believers who are interested in getting to know us, interested in doing things with us, and we can build relationships and share the gospel with them. One thing I did recently is I uh, I went to a, a chess club, and uh, and I learned that I, I stink at chess. <laughs> yeah, it did not take any time at all for them to wipe all my pieces systematically and quickly off of the board. Um, but that's okay because I was not entirely there to play chess. I enjoy playing chess, but I was there to meet people who were outside of my circles. And what I met there was a lot of guys who did not know Christ. Uh, a lot of guys that I could get to know who would be happy to talk to me over the top of a board. And then I could talk to them about faith and what that looks like. And so it's a great way to build relationships. I hope to do more of that. And I will continue losing for quite a long time uh, for the sake of the gospel. I am, I am happy to lose my chess pieces. Maybe it means crossing cultures. Maybe it means ministering to immigrants like what our English club does. Or even going as a missionary nationally or internationally. Our English club ministers every week to immigrants who are, uh, who are here um, trying to learn English. And they sacrifice their own time and efforts to do that. And, um, and so that, that might be a great opportunity for a place for you to plug in. It can mean pushing out of our comfort zones to start spiritual conversations with strangers. Our outreach team recently before Christmas put together a Saturday sharing event where we went out into our neighborhoods and we took uh, invites to our Christmas Eve services and welcomed to the neighborhoods for people who just moved in recently and we knocked on doors and we told them about our church and we looked for ways to start conversations about spiritual things so we could share the gospel with them. And that's an awkward thing. It was an intimidating thing. Everybody's nervous about going up and knocking on the door of somebody you don't know. Uh, but it is, it is worth something to knock on the doors of the people around the church and say, listen, it is because we love you, we want you to know about Christ. We want you to know uh, who we love and who loves us and what Christ has done for us. That is a worthwhile thing. It tells our neighbors that we love them enough to walk down the street and knock on their door. It just also looks like us learning about and caring about the people that God has put around us. And so we spend time in prayer for the lost. We spend time praying for those that we want to reach out to. But we also spend time learning about what interests them and, and what can help start conversations and how they feel about spiritual things. Once again, Paul's a great example in Athens as he went and he learned about what the Athenians are talking about and what's important to them. So when he spoke to them, he could spoke to them, speak to them in a way that would interest them and they could understand Following it for us to go out uh, to the lost in their context, it means self-sacrifice. It means intentionally giving up the time, uh, that some of which we have reserved for ourselves and for our own interests and for our own comforts. It means intentionally stepping out of our comfort zones and starting off our conversations sometimes. 
It means intentionally pushing our boundaries and going places where we're not always comfortable going in order that some might be saved. The second point we saw was that Paul followed Christ first, and that's an important reminder for us in this too. Just as Paul was careful to keep himself under Christ's law, he prioritized Christ at every step, we also reach out while putting Christ first. As we enter this context of non-believers, we're going to encounter ungodly speech. We're going to encounter ungodly behavior. And as we put Christ first, we can discern what the boundaries are. We can resist the temptation to adopt ungodly practices ourselves. And we can learn how to reach out to them without dishonoring Christ or without causing harm to our Christian family and to the church. And so putting Christ first is an important thing to do. And it also helps us to hold firmly to the truths of the gospel. We cannot sacrifice the gospel. We can't water it down. We can't leave parts out to make it more acceptable to our audience. Once again, returning to Paul in Athens, as he preached the gospel there, he used their philosophies. He, he, he used their poets to share with them. But one thing he did not do is he did not leave out the resurrection of Christ. He preached about the resurrection of Christ, even though he knew that would cause many of them uh, to turn away and reject his message. He did it because that's an important part of the gospel. He said they need to hear this, even if they choose to reject it. They need to hear it. So our contextualizing the gospel, our going out and sharing the gospel does not mean we leave any part out, even if it's offensive. And this is not just a call for us to go out and share our faith, but also a reminder that even as we do so, we must be rooted in the word, we must be rooted in prayer, and we must be rooted in the church for discipleship, accountability, and discernment. That will help to keep us rooted by putting Christ first, even as we go out among unbelievers to try to share the gospel with them. Third thing we saw that was Paul does it all to see the lost come to Christ. He does it all to see the lost come to Christ, that some may be saved. So let me ask you this morning, what are you willing to sacrifice so that others may be saved? Paul says he doesn't owe anybody anything, but he becomes every man's servant so that they might be saved. And as we look at this new year, I urge you to ask yourself where you might serve, what you might give up to help someone else to hear the gospel. I thank God for the blessing of our Sunday school teachers who, who serve each week. They give up time each week to prepare and to serve with these kids so that some of them may hear the gospel, that some of them may be saved. Thank God for our English club, those who sacrifice their time each week. There's, there's no pay. Nobody's paid for it. There's no obligation. It's not a government program that we're a part of. It's something that each one of them volunteers their time and effort to serve each week to learn about and to cross cultural barriers to teach English, to build relationships, to serve these immigrants for the sake of the gospel so that some might be saved. We have our outreach events. I encourage you to consider being a part of that, the awkward, intentional time where we learn to share the gospel um, and we learn to start spiritual conversations so that some might be saved. I want to ask you personally, how will you engage your neighbor I encourage you to check out Bless Every Home. It's a tool that's on our website that we provide as a church where you can begin praying for your neighbors by name. You can also look for ways to minister to them. You can also look for ways to share the gospel with them. Or maybe God's calling you to step even further outside your comfort zone. Maybe he's calling you to step into missions. We have our Poland mission trip coming up in August. We have a meeting next week where we're going to talk about what that looks like. Pastor Dustin is leading that. I encourage you to check that out. That might uh, be a great missions opportunity. Might even encourage you to look further as to where God might be calling you because uh, we're in this Lottie Moon Christmas offering season where we're giving and we're praying for international missions, but we also are called to go. We're called to go to our neighbor, to our community, but many of you may be called to go across the state, across the nation, or across the world. I hope you will pray about that and consider if that might be something uh, that God is calling you to, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's out of your comfort zone. 
As Paul gave these instructions for self-sacrifice and ministry uh, for the sake of the lost, it also mirrors the actions of Christ. It mirrors what Christ did for us. The Bible talks about Christ in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, and it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Christ modeled this humility, this idea of sacrifice for the sake of the lost. Because he died for you and me to pay the price for our sins. And what Paul is modeling here, what Paul is calling us to is that same sort of sacrifice. What are we willing to give up? What rights, preferences, comforts are we willing to give up to see the lost come to know Christ? If you haven't put your faith in Christ, maybe that's something that you need to hear this morning. That Christ loved you so much that he was willing to die to pay the price for your sins so that you can have an eternal relationship with him. He doesn't call us to earn our way to heaven he died. He paid the price. He earned our way to heaven so that we could have a relationship with him. He sacrificed himself. And so if that's something you need to hear, I would love to talk to you about that after the service, about how you can put your faith in Christ, how you can have an eternal relationship with him. And if you've already put your faith in Christ, and this passage calls us to model that same sacrifice in our own lives. Let Christ and Paul be your models today and take some steps out of your comfort zone. This year and the new year, consider how you might serve, what you might give up, where you might go or how you might adapt in order to reach those who are lost so that some may be saved.